Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. One more time, Merry Christmas. There we are. Now you're back. Now I got your attention. But what do those words mean? What do they mean? You say them all the time. What's the meaning? So this, uh, I was thinking about that because uh, this week I saw on one of the news programs uh, an interview. It was man on the street interviews. You know, where they send a reporter out on the streets and they ask people questions. And in this case, they were in Washington, D.C., right in the middle of the political powers that be, people walking around, you could tell they were you know, part of the city and part of the, the work of the government, and they were asking them various Christmas-oriented questions. And the more they answered, the, the I don't know, maybe the more, the more sad I, I think I actually was getting because the answers were really just shockingly um, stupid. I mean, that's just all there was to it. I mean, there's just the, the level of ignorance about Christmas and about Christ. And the questions were simple. Like, for example, where was Jesus born? Okay, where was Jesus born? You, you, most of you know the answer to that, right? Where was Jesus born? Right, no, no the North Pole. <laughs> North Pole, exactly. Now, one person did say Bethlehem, to her credit, Pennsylvania. So, uh, yeah, but at least she got part of it, right? Um, as to the facility was born, I mean, where was he born? What facility? What was it? Yeah, no, uh-uh, hospital. Hospital. And if the, the wise men, what gifts did they bring? Mm, sandals, bread, and a crown. Those were the top answers there. And then when, San, when, when Jesus grew up, what did he do? Well, he became Santa. And Christmas is the celebration of Santa's birthday. And then when they were asked, why did he come to earth? Why was he even born? Most of the answers were he came, he was born in order to bring gifts to children and to the rest of us. At least a couple of them said, well, he came to bring uh, peace and goodwill to men. So at least they were kind of closer there. How would you answer that question? I want you to turn to the, your neighbor, person you're sitting next to, and answer this simple question. Fill in the blank. Jesus came to earth to bring, how would you answer it? Go ahead, share it with the person next to you. Well, I hope that your answers were better than uh, gifts to children. But you know, the nice thing is, is that we do not have to rely upon our own interpretation of what Jesus came to bring. We don't have to rely upon our own knowledge, our own wisdom. We can go to the scriptures and the scriptures tell us what Jesus came to earth to bring. In Isaiah chapter 42, what we're going to read in a few moments, some verses from it. In Isaiah chapter 42, we have the first of what are known as four servant songs, God's ordained servant. And they're songs that are filled with prophecies and promises about the one who would come, this ordained servant of God. And in Isaiah chapter 42, this first song begins this process and it culminates in Isaiah chapter 53, which has you know, famous verses that we read every Good Friday when we have our Good Friday service. But in Isaiah 42, it starts this, this chain of songs. And in it, there is a twofold answer to 
why Jesus came to earth and what he, what he came to bring. It's a twofold answer. We're, gonna, we're going to look at the second answer tomorrow morning at 1030 when we normally have church. We will have church, and I hope that you will come and you will return, and we will celebrate the Lord's birthday, uh, at least as we as a culture celebrate it together in church. But tonight, we're going to look at the first four verses, and we're going to see how Jesus is God's chosen servant who brings justice to the nations. If you'll put the slide up, fellas, we won't trust this thing again tonight. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In these opening verses, we are introduced to God's ordained servant. He's not identified as Jesus. Scholars, different ones who maybe have a little bit too much time on their hands, have hypothesized alternative identifications of who this person is. Some have said it's a, it's a metaphor for the nation of Israel. The problem is Israel was not a very good witness, and they certainly were not faithful to God's law. In fact, in Isaiah, they're considered to be the opposite of that. Some have said this maybe is pointing towards Cyrus the Great, who will do so much in Israel's history, or perhaps it's looking back at Moses. And, and these are coming from people who don't want to accept that the book of Isaiah has prophecies in it that were completely fulfilled only in one person, Jesus. And when you start with this song and you look at all the songs culminating in Isaiah 53, it's obvious who this ordained servant is. It's Jesus. It can only be Jesus. He's the only one who meets the criteria of these songs. And in fact, the, the stage has been set earlier in the book of Isaiah for us to understand who this servant is. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These opening verses say something significant about this ordained servant, Jesus. And, and what's interesting is as you look at these opening verses, there's, a, there's several negative statements, one after another after another. And the manner in which he is not going to bring justice, actually tells us a lot about this prophesied, ordained servant of God. He is not going to cry aloud or lift his voice or crush the bruised reed or quench the faintly burning wick. Why the negatives? I mean, the negatives sometimes actually help us understand, maybe give us a a little bit better picture. But here you have negative statement after negative statement. What's the point being made here? 
Why does he stress he will not cry aloud or lift his voice in bringing justice to the nations? Well, how opposite is this of most kings who take control or world leaders and political figures when they, they bring about a kingdom or they, they seek to bring about justice or change? It's with a loud voice. It's with a, with a, a charismatic sense of personality typically. It's with a, a very, uh, you know, a, a, a sometimes combative style that either verbally or even physically gets after it to bring about the change or to bring about the victory. We've seen this throughout history. We've seen it in our own lifetime of certain leaders that their, their leadership style and their ability to get things done depends upon them being the loudest voice in the room. And they command attention and they dictate what is going to happen in the agenda to be followed. But here you see that the king of the universe who comes as God's ordained servant doesn't come like an alpha male warrior king. He, he comes in the form of a humble, meek servant who will bring about justice. He's God's humble servant king who brings God's justice. And the justice that Jesus brings is the justice that our broken world and our lives desperately need. I, I love the metaphors here. He will not break the bruised reed. He will not extinguish the faintly burning wick of the candle. Now, children, you, you may not know this, but back in the day when we had hurricanes in Florida, and the power sometimes would be out for days on end, even just a little, little hurricane, um, lights were out, and we didn't have, you know, batteries and, and generators. We had candles. How many of y'all remember that, right? And we'd have candles all throughout the house because you'd be without light at night. And so you'd have all these candles everywhere and you'd try to read your book by the candle and try to see and play games by the candles. And, and then of course, what would happen is, you know, first of all, wax would get all over your mom's favorite tablecloth. And then that candle would begin to burn down. And as it began to burn down, it would begin to sputter and, and flicker. And you knew that that candle was about to go out. And so you would, you would go find another candle, hopefully, and bring it and you would light it off the last one. And then you would and you'd quench the wick on that dying candle. That's a metaphor many of us are very familiar with. And then there's the other one here that he uses, the, the bruised reed. Again, it's one that we can understand. I, I saw it just recently. I was, I was fishing uh, in the river along the bank. I was wade fishing and near some mangroves. And as I was fishing, I noticed there was this beautiful mangrove, but there was this major you know, branch that was coming off of it and it had been damaged somehow. It was, it was still alive, it still was green, but you could tell it was hanging at such a, you know, odd angle that it would not be long until it would finally begin to rot and then it might affect the tree, and so you know what I did, right? I went over to it and snapped it off for the benefit of the rest of the mangrove. You've, you've probably seen that in your flower garden, a flower, beautiful one day, you come out the next day, it's bent at a weird angle, something hit it, squirrel, wind, you don't know, but what do you do? You don't sit, you just turn and you just, you deadhead it and you move on to another flower. That's what we do when we come to, to bruised reeds. We break them off. He will not 
And of course, in this metaphor, it's not about horticulture and plants. We are the reeds. We are the candles. And to be clear, the reference here to a bruised reed, which is us, is not talking about the surface level bruises that we get when we bump into something in the middle of a dark night. Or you play Frogger with your older brother and he leaves bruises up and down your arm. Not those surface level bruises. No, these are the types of bruises that are down deep. Like if you're in a car accident and, and you get hit and somehow your, your kidney experiences a devastating blow and there's this bruise on the kidney that ultimately may destroy the kidney or the liver or some other organ. And you don't know it yet, but your life is hanging in the balance because of that deep bruise in your body. This is referring to these, these deep bruises, these wounds that we have that are soul deep, that are the deepest levels of our lives. And for many of us, these bruises and these wounds, they slowly began to kill our spirit. They slowly began to destroy us. And they work against us so that we can't thrive. And, and we recognize how common this is. We recognize it so much at our church that we've actually wrapped it into our church's mission statement. We exist to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and to our broken world. Our world is filled with sin-broken people. Our world is filled with sin-bruised, sin-wounded people who are on the verge of being extinguished. People who are bent and they're not thriving and they're not going to get better unless something miraculous happens in their life. We recognize this, that this is common in our world. And by the way, it's common in our church. Because all of us who sit here this morning, or evening, excuse me, I'm normally speaking in the morning time. All of us sitting here this evening we understand what it's like to be wounded at the deepest levels because of our own sinfulness or the sinfulness of others against us. It creates deep soul, heart level bruises that began to destroy. And there's consequences to that sin that is either committed by us or others against us. This passage is saying, hey, if this is you, Jesus, he is the servant king who moves towards the person who's hurting. He moves towards the sin bruised, the sin wounded, the broken person, not to snap them off in two. Not to, you're not worth it, I'm moving on to something else. He moves towards the sin broken and the sin wounded in order to heal and restore and bring back the full life. That's our Lord Jesus. We know this passage is talking about Jesus, most importantly because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12, he takes these very verses and he applies them to Jesus in the, in the most interesting of circumstances. Jesus is, is being opposed by the Pharisees. They're, they're after him by this point in his ministry. And they're after him particularly because he does not observe their rules that they've made up for the Sabbath. 
And the Pharisees had all these elaborate rules that you could not do on the Sabbath if you were a holy person who worshiped God. And they were totally man-made. They were made a way to make them feel strong and good about themselves and keep people under control. And Jesus ignored them continually and, and this irritated the Pharisees. They got angry at him. Well, one Sabbath day, he, he feeds his disciples and they are now, they're really miffed. You cooked, you, you fed your disciples, you've broken the Sabbath law, you aren't resting. And then he, got, then he ups the ante. He goes, oh yeah, you like that? Watch this. And he goes into the synagogue and there in the synagogue is a man with a, with a withered hand. He's, he's crippled, handicapped. And in that culture, he's at the level of an outcast because the Pharisees and the other religious people would see that and they would ask the question, so what sin did he commit so that God would judge him in that way? Or what sin did his parents commit so that he was born with this crippled hand and deformed like this? And, and so to them, in their, his, their minds, he was the epitome of just somebody who was enduring the wrath of God, who wasn't worth their time. He'd snap him off, move on. And so Jesus, as he interacts with the Pharisees, he calls them out. And he goes, you hypocrites. You say, we can, I cannot do God's work on the Sabbath day, and yet on the Sabbath, when, you're, when your prized donkey or your prized bull or your prized lamb goes and falls into a hole and its life is endangered, you'll ignore all of your rules in order to go save that animal's life because that's money in your pocket. It hits you where it hurts. And yet you criticize me for healing God's creatures in his image, men and women. Uh-uh. And rather than running away and moving away from that man with the withered hand like everyone else would do, Jesus went towards him. And he took him and he healed him and he gave him his life back. This evening, I wonder how many people are here that could say, yeah, I have a withered hand. There's something in my heart, there's something in my soul. There's wounds, there's bruises that are deep and I carry them with me and I carry the consequences with me. They're ever before me. Maybe they're affecting your marriage. Maybe they're affecting how you cope in society. Maybe it takes the form of an addiction or the addiction is how you deal with the wound itself that is there at the deepest levels of your life. And it's something that has you in bondage, that is sucking the joy out of life. Some of you this evening, I wonder how many of us feel like we're just hanging on to the last little bit of the rope. We're sputtering, ready to go out. And this passage is for every single one of us who've ever felt that way or feel that way right now or will feel that way in the future. And this passage is telling us something important that God sees. He knows all about your brokenness. He knows all about our woundedness. He sees it all. He knows what our sin struggles are. He knows all the ways that we worship ourselves instead of Him. He knows when our hearts are frail, moving towards sin rather than towards our Savior. He sees it all. He knows it all. And He does not move away from us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't reject us. Instead, our heavenly Father sends to us his son, Jesus. 
the one who is born in human flesh, who understands all of our faults. He understands all of our frailties. The one who moves towards us and promises to not break us off or extinguish us, but to heal us and to give us eternal life to everybody who trusts in him. And why can he do this? Because verse four says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now what's interesting is that there is a sense of foreshadowing in this verse. That's not obvious right away. But the, the Hebrew words for faint and discouraged in the Hebrew are the same as those words in verse three, to be bruised, to be extinguished. In other words, Jesus is going to bring justice to the earth even though he himself is going to be bruised and he himself will be extinguished. This foreshadowing and this song comes into full display in the final song. In Isaiah 53, when verse five says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Why does Jesus move towards us and bring healing and salvation instead of breaking us off or extinguishing us? Because Jesus himself, when he was bruised, when he was wounded, he was broken off. He was extinguished for us. And so he identifies with our struggles. He identifies with our pain. He identifies with our frailties. And rather than rejecting us, he moves towards us like he did with a man with the withered hand. And he offers absolute eternal healing. Gospel restoration is what Jesus brings. And so everybody who's here this evening who's wounded, if you're bruised, you're hanging on, maybe you're barely surviving, and you don't know where to turn next. The answer in Isaiah 42 is turn to Jesus. Commit your life to Christ. When you come to him, he will not run from you. He runs to you. And he enters into your life and he begins to address these deep wounds, these deep bruises, and he begins to work them out and ultimately transforms us into someone, men and women, who can glorify God. If you need that kind of rescue this evening, let me encourage you, just pray. Turn to Jesus and just, help, I'm a mess. I can't fix my woundedness, my brokenness. I'm a sinner. I commit my life to you. Save me, heal me. And the promise of the gospel is that he will. And that's what Merry Christmas is all about. Lord Jesus, for the person here this evening maybe who has come and they are carrying these kinds of wounds and pains in the quietness of their home or in their room when they don't have the distractions of this world 
they know deep in their heart that something is drastically wrong. For everyone here this evening, Father, who is, finds themselves in that condition, would you help them, give them the grace they need, the power that they need to turn their eyes off of themselves, give them the ability to stop trusting in themselves or other things and instead turn to Jesus. And even now as I pray, Lord, would you put such a strong conviction in their heart that even today can be the day when they begin to experience the healing work of Jesus, they will simply confess their sins and commit their lives to him. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.